Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, and on this episode, we'll first be hearing from Trey Dimsdale, Acton's Director of Program Outreach, and Adam McLeod, Professor of Law at Faulkner University. Trey and Adam break down the definition of a basic human right. What makes a fundamental human right, and how is the definition understood today? After that, senior editor at Acton, Reverend Ben Johnson, speaks with Reverend Richard Turnbull from the Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics. They'll be talking about Brexit, Britain's exit from the European Union, analyzing the aftermath and the events leading up to Brexit that may have caused the split. If you're interested in any resources mentioned in the episode today, check them out in our show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Hi, this is Trey Dimsdale, the Director of Program Outreach at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thank you for joining us on our weekly podcast. I'm joined today with uh, Professor Adam McLeod, who teaches law at Faulkner University at the Jones School of Law in Montgomery, Alabama. Professor McLeod is going to be joining us later in the fall in a conference, uh, the third in a series of three con- transatlantic conferences in Munich. Uh, the theme of that conference is Liberty, Inequality, and Constraint, or Constraint, and Professor McLeod is going to be addressing the, the question of, of uh, basic human rights. So he's joining me today to have a, have a short discussion on that. Professor McLeod, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking your time to, uh, to talk to us today. Thanks, Trey. Glad to be here. So the, the first question that, that I have for you, that, for our listeners, is I, I was wondering if you could just give us a quick definition of, of the concept of a right Maybe let that bleed into a proper definition of the concept of a fundamental or basic human right. That's a term. Those are terms that get tossed around in our culture quite a bit. We'd, we'd be appreciative if you could bring some clarity to that for us. Sure. Well, the the classical idea of a right is something which directs uh, someone's practical deliberation and choice and action. In other words, uh, the classical idea of a right is what is right to do or not to do in any particular circumstance or in general. So if you look at uh, classical jurisprudence, if you look at classical moral philosophy, um, and the way that the idea of a right was used in law as well up until you know a century ago, really, um, the idea was that if I know what someone's rights are, then I know how I am to act toward them. So, for example, I made a promise to join you on this podcast, uh, and so you have a right that I join you on this podcast. Leave aside for the moment question whether it's a legal right or a moral right. It could be either, uh, depending on circumstances. Um, similarly, I have uh, you know, a duty not to defame you on this podcast, not to uh, falsely accuse you of something or tell some story which casts you in a bad light. Uh, while we're talking together today. Um, and so you have, as a result, uh, a right not to be dis- defamed. Um, that's, that's the classical idea of a right. What you see um, coming up in, in more recent times is a sense of a right uh, as a device f- for securing entitlements first. Um, and so to say that I have a right to, say, Healthcare or a right to uh, receive some sort of benefit from somebody, um, 
uh, you know, sort of sneaks into the vernacular, uh, you know, over the last several decades. And then eventually that trans, you know, is further transformed into essentially what I want. So what I have a right to becomes something that I want. Um, This is obviously hugely problematic for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into in a few minutes. But, you know, that I want a ham sandwich doesn't mean that I have a right to a ham sandwich. Um, it might be it might be the case that there's no ham on hand, um, or it might be the case that I'm in a uh, Orthodox Jewish neighborhood or a you know a faithful Muslim community, um, you know, say in uh, New Jersey or, or or Michigan respectively, um, and uh, everyone there has a right not to not to serve me any ham. Um, so, so the 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 idea of a right has sort of devolved from the classical idea that. Uh, a right is supposed to direct our actions and our and our deliberations and our choices toward what is right to do or not to do to well it's it's what i want and therefore um therefore i should have it um the fundamental right a right that is fundamental historically has referred to uh a a a duty with which it correlates that is again a right being something that directs our actions and our inactions and our choices and our deliberations if you understand a fundamental right in terms of the duty that it imposes on somebody you can understand a fundamental right as giving rise to a duty not to cause harm so if you think about the fundamental right to life what does it really mean to have a fundamental right to life well, fundamentally, it means two things. One, that nobody has a right to kill me. Um, and secondly, that everyone has a right, has a um, uh, duty not to kill me. And insofar as uh, those, uh, their, their no right or their lack of a right or their lack of a power over me, over my life, and their duty to abstain from ending my life, causing by violent means the, the termination of my life, to the extent that those are uh, recognized in their deliberations and actions, they they can perceive that um, this right of mine is is really quite fundamental. And prior to the the more recent kinds of rights, their desires, what they want, what they think they might be entitled to, um, and and so it has a it has a priority over the lesser kinds of of rights. When we look in, at the the landscape of of Western society today and we tend to use the term right and the fundamental right in a in a way that's uh, almost flippant um, with regard to you know kind of like the historic classical understanding of it. You know the the French uh, uh, the High Court in France recently, you know for example, uh, held that, that it was a fundamental right that uh, people should have access to the internet. How, how exactly do uh, does does that type of um, evolution of the concept actually imperil legitimate rights like the right to life like you just mentioned yeah it's it's really problematic what we have uh, now in the west is what um harvard legal scholar marianne glendon calls rights talk where every desire every want every claim of or every assertion is expressed in terms of rights and the result of this is that you have putative rights in conflict with each other. Um, so you see this very, very vividly in the most controversial issues 
those who would defend, um, say, restrictions on abortion speak in terms of the right to life, and those who oppose restrictions on abortion speak of the mother's uh, right to uh, determine her own bodily autonomy or uh, her right to health or so forth. Um, you see this in the public accommodations disputes between those who say, well, I have a right of conscience or a right of religious liberty or a right of free speech not to be compelled to use my business to communicate something I believe to be untrue, say that uh, marriage has a nature other than uh, man-woman union. And then on the other side, you see people saying, well, no, I have a right not to be discriminated against. So it can't be that both of those rights are right. <laughs> it can't be that um, that the rights asserted on, on, on both sides of that equation or, or, or actually in opposition to each other um, can be vindicated. One of them uh, is, is going to um, not be vindicated. So at least one of the rights is going to end up being suspect or even meaningless. But it's actually worse than that because when you have rights rights assertions in conflict with each other, you have to look at something other than the rights themselves to determine who is right, who is in the right, what is right to do or not to do. Um, and so the rights themselves, the normative value of the right uh, is, is, is depressed, it's devalued. It's current, the normative currency of the right um, devolves to zero. Um, and so the right is no longer actually doing doing the work in our, in our deliberations and our actions. And so what you see is when everything becomes a right, then nothing is a right. When you have assertions that I have a right to the internet or a right that someone make me a ham sandwich, um, and those are put up alongside truly fundamental rights like the right to life or the right of conscience, the, the silly or trivial uh, right assertion devalues the normative currency of the fundamental right. It's 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 sort of spending down or trading on the prestige of the the true fundamental core central right in a way that devalues all right claims. Uh, this is the situation we find ourselves in across much of the West. Um, no one really takes right assertions that seriously anymore. Uh, and, and really, you can't you can't blame them. So, playing the devil's advocate for a moment, you know, in these handful of you know European countries where, like for example, they found that access to the internet is a fundamental or basic human right. These are things that uh, presumably create uh, these these decisions and these policies are things that presumably create a burden that's placed on <clears throat> on the state. To, to actually provide that. And the argument is, is that as technology has evolved and as technology has, has influenced the main currents of life, both commercial or social, that um, a failure to be able to have access to information and access to the Internet creates a, like an unjust uh, underclass. You know, can can you address maybe uh, you know kind of the concept or, or the idea that that the evolution of technology, the evolution of the the main currents of life, are things that can can alter our conception of rights and what, whether or not that's legitimate, and and how you counter the argument of of kind of like the unjust results of not 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 actually um, having a flexible 
are, are, the, are the purported unjust results of not having a flexible definition of rights? Well, there's, there's two things going on there that I think deserve attention. Um, one is that technology is a good uh, like any other uh, good in society that's that's traded and which can be commodified, whether that's money or access to um, health care. Um, technology does very often, though not always, um, improve people's lives. And so uh, what's, at, what's at the bottom of this sort of argument is actually not per se connected to or or tied necessarily to uh, technological evolution, um, it's it's fundamentally a, a question about um, whether we have a right to uh, equal access to goods or equal um, use of goods. Um, and of course, that's a very very old uh, debate. Goes uh, you know all the way. Anyone who's read um, Hobbes and Locke and the the classic political philosophers about um, the question of uh, private property and whether we all have, uh, we should have equal access to the, the, the goods of the earth and the resources of the earth, um, knows that, uh, knows that this is something which, um, is, is, there's a tension there between liberty and equality that, uh, to the extent that people are free to have liberties, which are just kind of right, uh, to, to go about, um, using their labor and, and productively um, developing technologies and using technologies just as they would enclose an unenclosed field and develop it and cultivate it and grow food to do good things, we have a moral intuition that they should be free to do that. But of course, some people are going to be stronger than others. Some people are more intelligent than others. And so there's inequalities are going to result. Um, and, and then sometimes you end up with, you know, as you describe it, an underclass who doesn't have access to resources. And we have a moral intuition that that's problematic. So, so that's one thing that's going on. That's just a very ancient thing, which is just true of, of human nature. It goes all the way back, which isn't necessarily tied to the to technology. What technology does uh, differently is that technology itself is not uh, found in a state of nature. It's not a, a resource that's just in the commons. Technology has to be created by human beings. Um, this is, in fact, uh, we get the word technology from, from, uh, from the Greek for techne, which is, uh, you know, Aristotle's order uh, where humans, uh, where, where humans basically create the order, where the technology we wouldn't have cell phones were it not for, you know, Qualcomm uh, developing the infrastructure and the standards, um, and Apple, um, you know, uh, inventing the and, and others inventing the various uh, technologies that go into the handset, um, and you know, a, a typical uh, smartphone today reads over a couple hundred thousand patents. Well, that's you know a couple hundred thousand people who have invested their time and their energy and resources and risked, you know, taken lots of risks to, uh, to develop these technologies. It's not obvious to me that we should just um, deprive them of the fruits of their labor. So there are claims in justice uh, on both sides of these questions. We need to take those claims quite seriously, but we ought not just ignore or or allied over the claims and justice that those who have 
um, labored productively on resources to make new opportunities for us might have a, a really valid um, right, in fact, uh, a moral right, which ought to be enforced in, as a legal right to the, uh, the, the, fruits of their, the fruits of their efforts. I think we probably have time for just one more question here. And, uh, you know, I, we have a, a, a listener base that, that has a lot of different eclectic interests, obviously, the Action Institute, uh, you know, engages in a lot of broad scholarly pursuits. Um, I'm wondering if, um, you know, if you might provide a little bit of guidance to some of our listeners on where they might look for more information, the ability to be able to read a little bit more than just a you know fifteen minute conversation might provide them. Well, sure. Uh, there's a couple of reads that I stop at every day online. Uh, one of them, of course, is the uh, uh, the Acton uh, Power blog. Uh, there's there's always interesting stuff there, and occasionally uh, stuff about law and rights that uh, that I find useful. Uh, another is the online journal of, of the Liberty Fund, the Library of Law and Liberty. There are some, some excellent contributions there for some legal scholars who are, who are looking into these questions and other questions related to them. And then finally, I have some essays myself uh, about this uh, online, which I think might be of interest to your audience. I write for an online journal called Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, um, and, uh, and occasionally... Um, get into these questions, but also other questions that are related to them about uh, the relationship between law and justice uh, more generally. And, you know, these, these are the sorts of conversations that often require uh, some sort some extended sober reflection. So these are not easy questions. They can sometimes be, in fact, quite complicated. But, you know, if you have 15 or 20 minutes to, um, to read through a, a more extended essay or reflection on these questions, those are some good places to go. Yeah, great. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Adam. I'm looking forward to uh, our time together in Munich and uh, the excellent, excellent presentation. I'm, I'm sure that you're going to have prepared and bring along. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Trey. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Munich as well. What does Jerusalem have to do with Washington, D.C.? How should we understand the connection between Christian faith and American liberalism? Some say it's a necessary antagonistic relationship. Others, that it's a fruitful partnership that has been orchestrated by God himself. And still others say that it's a relationship in tension, bearing both good and bad fruit. While this question has been with us since the beginning of the American political experiment, our current cultural season seems especially fraught with difficulty and division with regard to how to think about our most important identities, loyalties, and duties. With this in mind, the Faith and Democracy in America Conference will consider this question with the intent of fostering meaningful conversations about what it looks like to do justice to both God and Caesar. Join us on December 6 and 7 to hear Sam Gregg and other Acton Institute affiliates discuss Faith and Democracy in America at the Prince Conference Center in Grand Rapids. Register now at acton.org events. It's been impossible to have any political discussion in the UK without mentioning one word, Brexit. But yet there's little understanding of what Brexit is, what it means, and the reasons behind it. Here to discuss this with me is Reverend Richard Turnbull. He's with the Centre for Enterprise, Markets and Ethics based in Oxford. He was joining us for a conference here at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids. Welcome to the programme, uh, Reverend Turnbull. Uh, thank you very much indeed. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. 
When we're talking about Brexit, first of all, Brexit means the exit of the UK from the European Union, uh, which has been part of its membership for 43 years. But uh, when the EU was first uh, proposed for membership, it was something different than the EU, wasn't it? Indeed. And the origins of the uh, EU, as we now know it, go back to the 1960s. And Britain uh, joined in the early 1970s. And the idea at the time uh, was that it was an economic union. And the idea was that it would allow free access to markets. It would allow trade to operate between the member states in a in a frictionless way. And the argument was that this would bring great economic benefits to the United Kingdom. And so, 1975, uh, a vote was uh, put to the people of the United Kingdom, the first referendum uh, on membership of the uh, European Economic Communities, as they uh, it was known at the time. And the British people were persuaded by the economic arguments, for, for better, for worse, and they voted by approximately two to one uh, to join the European Economic Union. And the EEC at that time was more of a free trade agreement than it was a super national political structure. It didn't have any uh, real impact in terms of UK sovereignty, did it? Uh, precisely. Uh, it was uh, almost entirely a trading and economic block. And uh, they had its institutions, but it was controlled by the politicians. And to begin with, it didn't even have a directly elected parliament. That uh, came along later. And of course, one of the big stories about Brexit, uh, British exit, uh, is understanding what changed uh, in that time. Uh, what changed from that original uh, vision of, of an economic block, a trading block, uh, uh, and so on, in, into a political institution uh, that threatened the sovereignty of the United Kingdom in the eyes of many people, and which potentially at least uh, lost the economic benefits that were promised. Uh, uh, and uh, that happened over a course of 40 years, and uh, the European Economic Community became the European Union uh, through a treaty known as the Lisbon Treaty. And the Lisbon Treaty established political institutions. It established the supremacy of the European Court of Justice. It, it, it established the so-called four freedoms, freedom, movement of goods, uh, the movement of capital, uh, the, uh, the movement of people. Uh, and that became a significant uh, feature in the years to come. But you see... The British people were never asked whether they wished to join a political union and surrender some of their sovereignty. So if I may give an analogy, it's rather like the United States having a free trade agreement with Canada or a free trade agreement with Mexico, but then uh, not being asked whether they actually wish to have their sovereignty pooled, their sovereignty shared, uh, uh, because... One would guess that if the American people were asked, do you wish to share your sovereignty with Mexico, the answer would probably be no. Uh, and this was true for Britain. Uh, uh, so the Lisbon Act was passed in Parliament, uh, but the British people at that point were never asked, do you wish to be part of a political rather than an economic uh, union? And uh, that was 1992, wasn't it, uh, that the Lisbon Treaty? Indeed. Yes. And so from that time forward, it's slowly been accruing power in Brussels and greater say over what its member states uh, say and do. So 
If we could, maybe uh, you and I should discuss two separate tracks, which is, to begin with, what are the real problems with EU membership in terms of uh, your perspective as a, uh, someone who believes in free markets and faith from yes. the UK? So uh, there are two issues really here. Uh, let's deal with the economic issues, first of all. Um, and I suppose one might characterise it in this way. Is the European Union a free trade area or is it a zone of protectionism? And the answer is, if you're on the inside, it looks like a free trade area. But if you're on the outside, it looks like one of the world's biggest protectionist zones uh, that exists. And so anybody from outside of the European Union importing goods into the EU faces a significant tariff. Um, and in addition to that, the free movement of services, of goods and of people and of capital uh, means that that isn't applied to those from outside of the bloc. So actually, the real economic complexity is that, yes, it is a market. Uh, yes, it probably is a good thing to have access to a market, but it isn't the free market that people think it is. It is actually a protectionist zone. And if you think about it then from the point of view of British economics, you have to ask the question, well, were we better off economically remaining in this free market, uh, remaining in this sort of free internal market, or actually would we better off being able to trade freely, not just with some countries in the world, but with all countries uh, in, in the world? And from an economic point of view, that was the, the, big, the big shift, really. Uh, but I think there was also a political side, um, and the political side I sort of hinted at a few minutes ago. Yes, I was, I was going to say perhaps we should distinguish that very real issue from the reason that most people voted to leave the European Union. But I, I wonder, before we touch on that, if you might also speak just a little bit about economic regulation coming from Brussels. Yes, of course. Um, and uh, the, so there are two other particular aspects of the economic impact of being members of the EU. Uh, one was control of the European Court of Justice, but the other was the, the power of the Commission, the unelected body, not the elected parliament, not the Council of Ministers representing the governments, but the unelected commissioners, uh, began to overlay more and more regulations covering everything from the shape of vegetables uh, through to detailed regulations on the conduct of business in the City of London. And particularly some people in the asset management industry, for example, uh, felt that there was direct discrimination against any smaller firms um, and the discrimination was always in favour of the big players. And so you begin to see then that the free market that they were suggesting existed within the EU perhaps wasn't quite so free, or maybe it was only free for some. And in order to have access to that 500 million person market, you had to be able to, um, to comply with all of the regulations that were passed from Brussels. In other words, every nation had to sort of defer its own regulatory power to Brussels and adopt the entire book as it was. Indeed, and legally, it meant, it meant that legally EU law uh, had a priority over British law. And it was not possible for a British court, for example, to overturn an EU uh, regulation. It would be imposed and it would be uh, uh, imposed upon uh, 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 companies and firms and, 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 and people and, and, and so on. There wasn't, uh, I mean, I'm hesitating slightly because there wasn't a choice. It, it wasn't that, well, certain circumstances meant you could overturn it. It was the, law, the, the courts of law were given no choice 
they had to implement uh, EU regulation. And then you hinted at uh, the, the, perhaps the genesis of the actual vote itself, uh, which shocked the world, 52-48, in order to leave the European Union. And uh, what was it, you think, that drove public imagination and uh, that yeah. drove the public to decide to leave the EU? It was, it was probably not regulation, although that's important for us. Sure. Uh, and actually, I think the reason the vote went the way it did was uh, more than one reason. Um, and uh, I almost uh, sort of hinted at it earlier. I think there were two parallel reasons that led to that vote. But the, the backdrop was, of course, the British people had never been asked before. And I think if the British people had been, had been asked in 1992, do you wish to be part of the European Union, they may well have said no then. But then there was these two things that happened. The first of those was this sense of loss of sovereignty, a sense that we were no longer an independent country, that we didn't have control over our own laws, over our own trading, over our own economics. And there was a real sense of, uh, of sovereignty uh, being a significant issue shaping the vote. However, there was another issue, and that was the issue of immigration. Uh, the way in which the European Union uh, was established uh, was that you had to accept the freedom of movement of people. And so uh, the British uh, faced large-scale mass immigration from uh, Europe, uh, net immigration being in the region of quarter of a million people a year. We're a country of 60 million. Growing by a quarter of a million a year is a significant proportion. And I have to say the politicians, the, the metropolitan elites, as one might refer to them as, really had no idea about how strongly uh, certain sections of the British uh, people uh, felt. And so that was a second very significant issue. Not that immigration was always wrong, but that it should be controlled and that we, the British Parliament, should have the right to control it. And it was those two things coming together uh, uh, from the more, I guess, from the more working class parts of the country, uh, this sense of the need to protect the border from immigration, um, from the slightly more wealthier, well-off parts of the country, which also voted to leave, by the way, um, uh, it was the national sovereignty uh, was, the, was the driving force. And in fact, if you look at the breakdown of the vote across voting districts um, outside of London, almost all the districts that voted to remain um, were districts with significant universities. Um, so in the district I live, uh, or the city I live, which is Oxford, Oxford voted 70% to remain and 30% to leave. But the district I actually live in, which is the next door one to Oxford, uh, voted 50-50. Um, so you can see the distortions that you, 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 you got. Certainly, and for a brief time, the UK tried to combine those two things which Milton Friedman said could never be combined, which was open borders and a welfare state. So you had people who were coming in from the continent, and yet they could, they could apply for benefits just the same as uh, immigrants to this country sometimes can and do. Uh, that issue has led some people to believe that uh, Brexit was merely a populist revolt. They sort of link it with the election of Donald Trump. Yes. And they say that uh, this is merely an outpouring of anger and xenophobia and that Christians should have uh, malign ideas about uh, the people who voted in favour of it. How would you respond? Yes, I think it's far more... Uh, you are absolutely correct that that is often how it is characterised. I think it is far more subtle and nuanced uh, than that. And I have to say that when the... It, it is not xenophobic 
to want to have proper control of the borders of a nation state. Uh, it is a perfectly reasonable uh, position to have. And we had faced many years where we had no control, many years where uh, we had uh, to give priority uh, to the immigration of anybody who wished to come from anywhere else in Europe. We weren't allowed to discriminate against those individuals. Uh, they were on occasion, uh, sometimes they would work, of course, uh, but on other occasions they would claim benefits from the welfare system. They would use the National Health Service, which I know is a whole other topic, but they would use the National Health Service uh, without a payment. They would have access to uh, the education system uh, without uh, payment. And I think our metropolitan elites just fail to understand that people decided, not that they hated foreigners, I don't think people thought that at all, but that we simply needed to establish control over legal immigration, have a proper system so that people could uh, uh, have access to the country if they met the criteria, and then we sought to prevent illegal immigration. So it's really a matter of law, and it's a matter of the rule of law. And to some degree, a matter of subsidiarity to um, allow these decisions to be made by the nation which is directly affected. So thank you for bringing that kind of clarity so that Christians can understand the underlying issues, both economically but also in terms of sovereignty and the way that it's characterized popularly. Now, you are at the Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics, which can be found at thecceme.org. Tell us just a bit about that. Sure. Uh, we, we're a very unusual organisation. We've been in existence in the United Kingdom for six years. We're, we're small. And uh, the reason for that is we combine two things. Uh, we combine a commitment to the market economy. Uh, we believe the market economy is what delivers uh, wealth and well-being, uh, not just for some people, but for uh, all people. But we combine that with a Christian faith, Christian belief, uh, theological uh, insight, and that makes us uh, relatively unusual in the UK because a lot of the emphasis on the church uh, defaults to the uh, corporatist or left-wing or state-dominated solutions. And although there are other people who advocate the free market, some other free market institutions don't bring faith to bear into the question. So we're trying to combine those two things, how to build an enterprise economy, but built on sound ethical values. Well, that's an organization after our own hearts. So, Reverend Richard Turnbull, thank you for joining us here at the Acton Institute. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests you'd like to hear on the show, don't hesitate to reach out. Lastly, if you like what you hear on this podcast, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.